Great news. We've been praying about it, talking about it. But this week we're going to sign on a multi-year lease to be back at the space where we were before. It's now called the Northwest Event Center. And we're going to be there every Sunday. We have exclusive rights to an office suite so we can meet all week long. We have access to meet during the week. And just so you know, we're calling it home, but we're, we worked out a deal with the Northwest Events and Environments. They'll continue to lease the space during the week when we're not using it. So our rent will be cheap to the glory of God. More resources to kingdom stuff, but we have 100% of Sundays, Sunday morning, Sunday night. So we are giddy about that. Now we'll get a little more formal, but this all got figured out literally this week. But I wanted to give you a heads up as to what's going to happen. It's going to take a lot of effort to recreate that space to really fit the mission and vision that we have as a church. And so over the next few weeks and months, we're inviting everyone, say the word everyone, everyone to participate. We read Romans 12, worship is giving your life uh, as a sacrifice. If you can lead, lead. If you can teach, teach. If you can paint, paint. You know, if you can scrub floors, scrub floors. If you can redo tile, you probably make a lot of money. You know, like all that stuff. So we're going to invite, we're going to do this. We're going to be very frugal about what we buy. We're not going to outsource anything that we can do ourselves. We want to invest in it as a family and own it. And so I'm inviting you to do that. Now, there are some resources needed to upgrade it. There's no sound system in there right now, and this will only cover a portion of the building. We want to redo the kids' space completely, rip out all the old carpet, make it first class. All of this we want to do, and the resources it's going to take is about $200,000 to do all of it which in the scope of it, there's 25,000 square feet of space there. By God's grace, the church that was there before did most of the heavy lifting, spent more than a half a million dollars to make it a church. And now we just get to finish it off. We are abundantly blessed as a family. Uh, but it will take about 200,000 to purchase all of these things. And so here's our plan as a church. And this is, as a church, we're about 11 years old. We don't do fundraising campaigns. We don't twist arms. We, as an elder team, discover the need, work it through, get it to the bottom line, and we present it. We will do all of this as we have the funds, and we believe that God has enough resources to do all of this. And the only challenge is it's in your bank account and, and not in the churches. That's the, all the money's there right now. We could do it today. And we just believe that God's graced people with resources. So as you pray, just think about what God would have you do above and beyond your regular sacrificial giving. And by the way, this is the most generous church I've ever been a part of. So we are in the black. We are doing fine. God has graced you to be generous. Um, but the way to do this, because we don't do a lot of fundraising, is we have created a building fund. And so our, everything you give to, goes towards a general fund budget. 20% goes off the top to the poor, the widow, the orphan, to plant churches around the world. All of that goes out. But we set aside a fund for this building project. If you want to give towards it, would you please help our accounting team? Because in order to reach the $200,000 goal, we need to know. Because if you just write a check that's generous, we won't know it's towards the building. And here's a clever term. You may want to write it down. Sunset Building Fund. It's that non-creative, okay? So if you would do that as God stirs you, we'll just, I'll just occasionally let you know, hey, here's where we're at. Here's where we're at. And we made a list of what we need to get, A, B, C, and D, like you do in your own home. When we have the money, we'll do the A's first. When we have more, we'll do the B's until we're done. The goal is the sooner, the better. Priority number one, kids. Amen? And the kids will be done first. So help us. Oh, little, little thing. I presented this 
uh, Tony and I, to the, our elder team. As a church, we're a family. There's a church in downtown called Bridgetown. There's Westside and us. And we presented this huge opportunity and said, pray with us. This is great. And the elders of the other churches collectively said, you know what? We want to get you started and gave a gift to us of $60,000 to get us started. I know. This is huge. I mean, this is, this is, so I was like, 600000 you gave? And then they're like, no, 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 drop a digit. Anyway, I thought maybe I could crank it up. No. Anyway, but so I, I was floored. And so God has already given us part of that seed money to work on the kids. So uh, enough said about that, but I want you to be in the know. We don't want you to be in the dark, but we'll get more specs and probably put some stuff on social media to keep you up to date. Make sense? All right, great. Well, let's just pray and dive. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you're working. We thank you that you're moving. We thank you that you've given us space we don't deserve. This is grace. Lord, you set apart not just a time slot for us to meet, but you've given us a home and you're sending us back there. And we want to say thank you. Lord, for the resources to get started for 60,000, we can't say thank you enough. And God, for the rest of it, by faith we say yes. Lord, we know that you are generous. And God, just surprise us this week, this month, uh, from now to the end of the year, Lord, we want to see your kingdom come and people find life in you. And thank you for a building to facilitate that. And God, as we look now to your, uh, the death of your son and the burial of your son and the resurrection of your son, I pray tonight that we would see it with fresh eyes. Holy Spirit of God, give us eyes to see what is so vital to our walk and our faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you've got your Bible. Uh, turn to Mark chapter 15, and we'll continue where we ended last week. We'll start with verse 40. So Jesus is on the cross, and, and he died. And now verse 40. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. And we'll, we'll pause. We're going to read about the burial and Jesus rising in a moment. So Jesus on the cross and, and, and Mark tells us something. Now before we think about what Mark tells them, I don't know if you realize how crazy that statement is. Sounds blasé to you. There's some women there. Okay, whatever. But what Mark is saying is absolutely surprising. The problem is 2,000 years later, we got comfy seats, we got air conditioning, we have ice cream outside as you go. Like, th th we're so far removed. We don't see this as, as exciting and provocative, but that's exactly what Mark is doing. I'll get to that in a second. But to set the tone, let's uh, throw up a graphic, if you wouldn't mind. We got a graphic of a, a letter in Arabic. Anyone knows what letter that is? Anyone read Arabic? Okay, anyone know Spanish? French? German? No, anyway, what, what letter is that? It's the letter N in Arabic. And for those of you in social media, lots of people have changed their profile pic to that letter in light of what's been happening. If you've been watching the news in northern Iraq, uh, there is a radical, radical uh, Muslim group. The letters were ISIS. They've dropped it to IS, Islamic State. And this group wants to absolutely make Iraq and the world fully Muslim. And so in doing that, they have, they have flagged Christians. And the letter N stands for Nazarene because Jesus is a Nazarene. 
And so I don't know if you've been following this, but right now we have brothers and sisters, not, not strangers, brothers and sisters who are following Jesus, who ISIS or ICE, Islamic State, these militants have told Christians you have three options. One, convert to Islam, and that's the smartest. Two, pay a massive religious tax. It would be more than $100,000, which nobody has. So if you could pay the tax, you're all right, but nobody can. Third option, suffer and die. That is happening right now as we sit here in suburban Portland. And so everyone reads the Bible with a different lens, right? When you read the Bible, you come with your whole worldview. You come with your background, with your education, with your experience. You read the Bible with lenses. But right now we have brothers and sisters who are reading Mark's gospel with a different set of lenses because they have been tagged, they've been spray painting the sign N in the house of Christians to identify them so that every Muslim and radical Muslim would know these are Christians and they have three options and they have no problem killing our brothers and sisters. Would you agree that if you're reading the Gospel of Mark in, in northern Iraq, you'd read it with a different lens than us? Because we know that Mark is writing to a persecuted church. And so what I want us to do is when we see the, the end of Jesus' life and his burial and his resurrection, we want to read it as if we are reading it in northern Iraq. And we have a group of radicals who want to squash and kill our faith because they don't believe that Jesus the Nazarene is the Son of God and we, they believe that our faith is invalid. And with that set of eyes, what Mark does is he does not give us happily ever after. If you read the end of Mark, there's no like neat little bow at the end. And, oh, isn't that great? And princess and the prince go to the castle. Mark ends abruptly. And Mark ends with a few surprises that because we read it so nonchalantly, some of us might miss out. Now we've read the first surprise. We already read it. But I don't think it's surprising to us. And number one, the, the first surprise is the role of women. The role of women in the encounter of Jesus dying. We don't think about it, but who does Mark tell us is there when Jesus dies? Verse 40, some women were watching from a distance. And then he gives us the names, Mary, Mary, and Salome. Mark almost never gives names. If you read the Gospel of Mark, very rarely does he give anybody's name. When he gives someone's name, he's like, hello, Flashing lights, this is important. He gives us the name of three women. Who are the closest male followers of Jesus? Bible quiz. Peter, James, and? Does he give us Peter, James, and John? No. He, as a matter of fact, he doesn't mention those guys at all. It's interesting. What Mark wants us to know, shocking, at the end of Jesus' life, there's a bunch of women around him, and the guys have all evacuated. This is surprising. And we're going to get to why in a moment. Just jump all the way down to verse 47, the end of chapter 15. Verse 47 it says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So we know when Jesus is crucified, Mary, Mary, Salome, and other women are there from a distance. Then when Jesus is buried, I jumped ahead. We'll go back in between. That, that Mary and Mary uh, are there to see where Jesus is buried. And here's the point. Mark says at the beginning of this new world, because Jesus has died, everything is about to change. What we see is something startling. Who's there when Jesus dies? A bunch of ladies. The women here are pictured as faithful. The women are pictured as faithful disciples to Jesus. 
And Mark is doing this on purpose. He's painting a picture that as we read now to the end, we're going to see comes very clear. Now in all four Gospels, the first witnesses to Jesus' death and resurrection are women. This may not seem like a big deal to us, but you got to think back to Jesus' time. Today we live in a day where women, for the most part, have more rights than they did at least 100 years ago, definitely 200 years ago, and by far 2,000 years ago. Uh, in Jesus' day, women were treated as just above property. They belonged to their husband or they belonged to their father. They weren't independent, even if they had financial means. And women couldn't give uh, uh, their testimony at trial because they were seen as unreliable and gossips. And we don't know if they really are clued in to the truth. Education was afforded more to men than to women. That's the society Jesus lived in, both Jew and non-Jew. Jewish boys got education, not all Jewish women. So it's the culture that they were swimming in. So who witnesses Jesus first? Women. Now, this is a problem. Somebody say, like, why is that a problem? Because in Jesus's day, they wouldn't take the testimony of a woman as valid. But Mark is not afraid to say, when Jesus dies, the ladies are there. And when Jesus is buried, the ladies are there. Side note, and we'll, we'll get to a bigger point later, but side note. Some people say, well, I don't know if, the, if I could trust the Bible because it, it's probably just some made-up stories by a bunch of guys who wanted to push their worldview. This is one of those instances. Someone says, I don't know about the credibility of the gospel story. Let me tell you, my friends, there is no way, if this were not true, there is no way Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would all say it was women who were the first pe people to testify to the resurrection of Jesus because that made it unreliable in the sight of most people. But the gospel writers were saying the facts as they were. They weren't afraid to give the evidence, even though people mocked them. I have read letters from Roman officials, because I'm a history nerd, Roman officials 200 years after the life of Jesus who still call the Christian faith the faith of babbling women. Because they don't, they don't see, if women saw, it, it probably wasn't accurate. They probably saw a ghost. It wasn't Jesus. It was his twin. Like, you know, or whatever. They, they don't take the story value. But the fact that the gospel writers all include women as the leaders of it just shows the integrity with which we get the story. Even though they were mocked for it, they give us the truth. That's just a little side note for you history buffs. Okay, now you know. But what's Mark getting at? What Mark wants to do is paint the picture of what it means to follow Jesus. From the beginning of the gospel, from Mark 1.1, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He wants us to know, how do you follow Jesus? Well, you follow like the ladies. The ladies express a faith that we're supposed to pattern our lives over. What is this saying? I think in a big picture by stating what these women do, what Mark wants to remind us is that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, everything changes. Everything changes. Absolutely. So, so whereas before, women might be seen as unreliable in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it changes everything. And now, the spokespeople for this for this faith, this calling of God to all people who will listen, it could be spoken by men and it could be spoken by women. Whereas a culture looked down on women in this new world, anyone and everyone can be used by God. The resurrection of Jesus changes anything. And what does that tell, tell me? It says that in light of Jesus, God can use anyone. 
He can use anybody. So, so whereas in their culture, you had to be rich, you had to be educated, you had to be male. Now, like in the first instances, Jesus just died on the cross. But Mark is careful to tell everything's about to change. And so now that what these women have to say is going to influence many others so that they will follow Jesus as well. God can use anyone. God can use anyone at any time. God can use you. I think if you want to bring this home, if God can use Mary and Mary and Salome to be a part of the story of Jesus dead and then now risen because they're there to see the death, they're there to see the burial, and we're going to see in a minute, they're there to see the resurrection. What can God do through you? Do not underestimate the fact that because Jesus has died and risen, now anything is possible, not just for the Bible writers, but for you. And that's what Mark, remember, Mark's writing to a church that's struggling in their faith because other people are saying it's wrong and we're going to kill you or take your property or make fun of you or steal your business. And Mark's saying, hold on. If God can use these women, God can use you as well. In light of this, Paul, a couple of decades later, picks up on the same idea and he writes in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 for time. We'll just throw it up on the screen. I want you to look at it. It says, brothers and sisters, all of us, think of what you were when you were called. Now think of these ladies. They're following Jesus from a distance. But now in light of Jesus' resurrection, look at this. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth, just like these ladies. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and he chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him in light of what happened in Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, anyone, anywhere can be useful in God's sight and you don't need to boast about it. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John writing about the story, they're a part of it, but they have no reason to boast. It's because God included them that they have something to say. And these women who are seen as lowly and unreliable, they have no reason to boast, but they have reason to be proud. God can use them too. Male and female. Tonight you may be like, I'm 16. What can I do for the kingdom of God? Let me tell you, you can turn the world upside down. Not because you're influential or you're powerful, but because you have the same spirit that resided in Jesus and the same spirit that Jesus said would be in every one of his followers now lives inside of us. We need to see the gospel with that kind of lens. Anything is possible. God can use you to do anything, and it's all because of Jesus. That's the first thing. Second thing I want to see, which is surprising, maybe not to us, but definitely to the original reader, is Joseph. Joseph has a bit of a boldness. Let's, let's continue. Let's pick it up in verse 42. So we saw the women. Now it says, it was preparation day. That's the day before the Sabbath, so Friday evening. And as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Now Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And then it says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So I want us to see 
Again, we've got to try and read this with the eyes of someone who's getting it for the first time. Women can be witnesses of Jesus and his resurrection. That's powerful. Now, Joseph of Arimathea is showing a boldness in God that nobody else has. Peter, James, and John aren't mentioned as even there. Joseph is part of the council. What's the council? It's the council of leaders who put Jesus on trial. You got to see this twist here. Who are the heroes in the story? Women that others look down on. Who's the hero in the story in terms of the guys? Joseph, who's part of the Sanhedrin, Jewish ruling council, 70 top leaders who all are against Jesus trying to get him killed. But yet, who stands up in the moment and expresses faith and boldness like all followers of Jesus should? Pause. Mark is writing to people who are under oppression and he's trying to stir their boldness. So if you're in trouble, what do you want to hear? Stories of other courageous people, right? So he gives us the story of courageous women. Now he gives us the story of a courageous man who's, who's risking his life on both ends. Number one, he's a part of the Sanhedrin and they put him on trial. All of his buddies are about to be against him because he has taken the time to bury this false king that everyone else wants murdered. Joseph of Arimathea has, he has boldness and courage. He's risking the relationships. So we know that, and Mark tells us, he's, he's expecting, he's waiting for the kingdom of God. There's something about Joseph. Mark doesn't say he's a full-on follower of Jesus, but he sees something. He's expecting God to come and so he honors. Now, in Jewish society, you would never leave a dead man hanging. Um, you don't leave people out to rot. The body is sacred. It's the temple of God. It's made by God. So even if you're a Jew and your enemy dies, you bury your enemy. So even if Joseph isn't totally pro-Jesus, what Joseph does is honorable in the sight of God. He sees a man who has been killed, and he pulls him down. But we know there's something special because he brings him into his own tomb. So it's one thing to say, oh, let's bury him somewhere. But he takes the effort. It doesn't imply here, notice all the way it's said, it doesn't imply that he had someone else do it. He himself takes him down from the cross and he buys the linen and he wraps him and he puts him in. And so whereas everyone else is running and hiding, he risks his life with his Jewish friends and he risks his life with Pilate. Who just killed Jesus? Pilate. Pilate ordered the crucifixion. He goes to Pilate and says, hey, I would like this man's body. Implication, I'm connected with him. The last person you want to be connected with is Jesus right now. And Joseph of Arimathea is unashamed. He boldly goes to Pilate. Pilate's like, he's dead already? And he sends a centurion to make sure. And once he finds out he's really dead, he's like, okay, I'll give you the body. He could have taken and arrested Joseph on some trumped up charge. We don't know. But remember, Mark is giving us the picture of two bold types of people. The women are bold. Peter, James, and John are gone. Joseph, who should be against Jesus, or at least quietly following from a big different distance, he's the one there with Jesus. And Mark is letting us know this. He's surprising us with this so that we can become followers as well who are like the women and like Joseph. What am I saying tonight? In light of the women, we realize that God can use anyone, anytime, anywhere. You're useful. In light of the story of Joseph, I think that we're reminded that following Jesus can be risky. And it's good to just stop and think about this for a second. Following Jesus does not seem risky to most of us. I mean, what are you really risking? 
you give up a couple of hours on a Sunday night. You, you maybe laugh that a little bit on the job if you really follow him or carry a Bible or read a Christian author or talk about your faith. But let's read it with the lens of northern Iraq because that's the way Mark is writing. He's writing to people in Rome who are being persecuted. And he's saying to them, listen, when the time of challenge and testing comes, following Jesus may cost you something. These women put their life on the line. Joseph put his life on the line. But we see them in the setting as people who honor God and are full of faith. And so we're called to see them and to follow in the same vein. Following Jesus will cost us something. So now I'm not suggesting tonight that you should say, God, send me to northern Iraq or Afghanistan or northern Nigeria where Christians are being killed week in and week out. I'm not saying, Lord, send me to the most dangerous place. What I am saying is following Jesus means following Jesus. And if Jesus calls you to something that's hard and challenging and risky, don't say, why me? Just look at these. All throughout the history of our faith are men and women who've been called by God to do tough stuff. And Jesus is calling his followers to follow in his footsteps. And Jesus is unafraid to suffer. And so in the same sense, if following Jesus creates some risk for you and it means some relationships are gone or some weirdness happens and you suffer, so to speak, if he calls you to a place, say, leave your career, leave your home, leave your surroundings, and I want you to go and proclaim my good news to these people in this part of the world, whether it's here or abroad, we should be people like these women. Mary, Mary, Salome, Joseph of Arimathea, who unashamedly in the moment say, yes, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to be counted. And I hope that we as a people, as a church, are marked out like that. I'm uninterested in suburban Christianity. Like, you know what I mean by that? Like, I want it super comfy. Suburban life, the challenge of suburban life, and I live in the suburbs, I'm not slamming anything, but, but the whole mindset is catered to us, right? Extra parking, extra seating, Extra, extra, extra. It's all about us. And, and, and I want to follow Jesus living in the suburbs, but I don't want to follow Jesus with a suburban mindset that says life revolves around me. Because the way of Jesus, according to Mark and his gospel, is the way of the cross. And the way of the cross means sometimes Jesus requires his followers to go through difficulty. And to that, we should say, thank you, Lord. Thank you that I get to be counted. In Acts chapter 4, you should read it. We're going to go through the, the book of Acts, so I won't tonight, but Acts will be studying next year. When, when uh, Peter and John are, are persecuted and beaten for standing up in the name of Jesus and healing someone, which is kind of a nice thing, what does the church pray? Lord, get us out of this mess. Lord, I need a latte. Lord. No, it's say, Lord, grant us boldness to proclaim. Lord, in light of people hating us, give me inner resolve. Lord, I want more boldness to stand up for you. And I want to be a community that's not marked by stupidity. Don't get me wrong. But it's marked by boldness. Boldness in the way we love. Boldness in the way we serve. Boldness in the way that we give. That we're the most generous, radical people who love the unlovable and do stuff for people that makes no sense. But because Jesus said, do it, we do it. That's the kind of church Mark is calling us to be. So we see a couple of surprises. Let me just ask you tonight, when it comes to following Jesus, where do you need courage? Joseph's got it, and Mary, Mary, and Salome have it. Where do we lack 
courage. Tonight, the invitation is to all of us is to read the gospel and put our, put our own stamp on it. Say, you know what? I want to be like that. Where do we need courage? The good news is God provided it for the ladies and he provided it for Joseph. And he will provide it for anyone who's willing to follow him. Well, there's a third surprise here that I don't want us to miss. And it comes in chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 1 says, When Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, same ladies, brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they're on their way to the tomb, and they ask each other, who's going to roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And they entered the tomb. They saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And there were, I love this, and they were alarmed. Jesus is dead in a cave with a stone. The, st the stone covering it is rolled to the side. They walk in and see one in the appearance of white. I think I could use better words here. They were totally freaked out. What would happen to you if you go into someone, I mean, you're expecting dead Jesus and he's not there, but there's a guy saying, hi. I mean, this is, this is absolutely, this is shocking to us. And what are we supposed to get out of this? Let's just, let's just read. Verse six, don't be alarmed. <laughs> now, by the way, the, the phrase, a young man dressed in a white robe is a phrase, phrase and a euphemism for an angel, Matthew and and Luke tells us it's an angel. This is a messenger of God. So a messenger of God is there and saying, Jesus isn't around. And he says, calm down. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified, just in case they like, have the wrong tomb. Like, it's like, you're, you're looking for Jesus, right? Because, okay, and then what do they say? He is not here. He's risen. An even better translation would say he has been raised. Because the implication is not that Jesus just got up himself, but that God, because God's messengers come, God has raised his son Jesus. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he, Jesus, is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, that's Jesus, just as Jesus told you. So here's the surprise ending. And, and, and we'll read it, verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the men went out, the women went out and fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So let's just put this together here. What, what does Mark do to end this? No happily ever after. His last little phrase here is trembling and they're afraid and they don't say anything. Remember, the women are at the tomb, they're at the cross, and they see Jesus crucified and they have faith. But here, the, the, the messenger says, this is exactly what Jesus had promised. He's going to Galilee. Go see him there. You're going to see him. Now go get the disciples. Tell them that Jesus is alive. And they are scared to death. And this, in a sense, makes sense. Again, who's Mark writing to? He's writing to people who are suffering for their faith. He's writing to people who are willing to risk everything to follow Jesus. And he wants them to know, and his last kind of taste is, if you are scared to death right now, you're in good company. The ending of it is the resurrection of Jesus even allows for his followers to be scared about what to do next. Have you ever been like 
got, got a nudge. Not, not like some voice from God, no white, white you know, sheeted angel or anything like that, but just some nudge that you're supposed to do something in Jesus' name, big or small. Like, I think God wants me to do this. And then you suddenly hit the panic button, like, oh my gosh, what would that cost? Or I, I can't do that. Or I've never, you know, like sometimes when we get a sense that God is moving in our own world, it's followed by fear. Now, what's the last taste of the gospel? Is trembling and afraid. The women ran out. Now, fortunately, Matthew and Luke and John tell us that the women do go and they do tell the disciples. And guess what? The disciples don't believe them either. The last taste that we get in Mark's gospel is that nobody believes Jesus. <laughs> Chipper ending, right? Nobody believes him because everyone's running around. So none of the guys are at the tomb. The women are not there to witness the resurrection. They brought spices. Now, what are they bringing spices? Like, why bring Jesus potpourri, right? Now, they weren't doing it to embalm his body and keep him forever. Here's what happened in the first century. You would bury you in a tomb, which is a rock out of a hill, and they put a stone in front of it to cut out some of the smell, to be honest, and your body would decompose. And once it decomposed, they would take your bones out, roll the stone away, the smell would be half gone, take your bones and put it in a box and put it in the catacombs uh, and with other family members. And to save space, they would reuse that tomb. So they didn't bury you under the ground like we do today or cremate. They put you in a tomb, your body decomposes. So in order to minimize the smell, what you do is when you wrap someone in linen, you'd also put spices so that as they, this is gross, I know, decompose, it takes away some of the smell. The reason Mark gives the juicy details about the spices is these ladies are not expecting Jesus to get out. They're coming to honor him because it was so late on, on a Passover night. On Passover, Jews don't work. So on Friday night when Jesus dies, there's not enough time to properly put the spices and wrap him. So Joseph quickly, quickly wraps him, puts him in the tomb, and then on the Sunday, they're going to honor their Lord, and they're going to remove the linen and pack him in spices. put him around. They're not expecting Jesus to be alive. And I think this is so encouraging that in the moment where God is trying to do a work through his people, his people are struggling with fear. Try leading a church someday. I would encourage you. You should just try it. It's easy. You work for three hours a week. You come on Sunday. You preach a message that's half-baked. Then you go home and it's all fine and dandy. It's hard. There's twists and turns. There's all sorts of turmoil. Try doing anything for God, and you're going to find there's God's voice and fear. And let me tell you, fear is always louder than God. The voice of fear is screaming, and it seems like God is whispering, you can do it. But then the voice of fear is saying, no, you can't. Never happened. I know who you are. Look at what you did. And look at what, you, look at what you've tried. And you know. And look at your mom and dad. And look at this. And look at that. And you don't have time. And you can't. And God say, oh, yeah, you can. Oh, you, you, you could totally do this. But the voice of fear is always louder. And that's how the gospel ends. Is God is about to do something. The world is about to be turned upside down. And most of the followers are bewildered, astonished, afraid. And I think this is so telling I wish I knew how to match texts from the Bible with what we're going through. If you think that anyone is that smart in this crew, maybe Tony Vittisich, not me, to match up. But it's just so comical. We are four Sundays from now going to be meeting in our new space. And there's so many reasons to fear. 
What about the resources? What about this? What about that? What about that? And yet God is so wonderfully reminding us through the gospel that in the resurrection of Jesus, these people could be a witness. So what am I saying? I'm saying don't let fear keep you from obedience. Don't let fear keep you from obeying God. If God is stirring you to do something, be something, try something, don't let fear stop you. Because the voice of fear is always louder, but the voice of God is always wise. And don't confuse the two. And if you listen to the wise wise voice of God, you will have the power to do what you think you can't do because God will be with you. You know, I, I just hope that our church story is marked by dramatic risks in Jesus' name. Uh, I think, and I stand with a bunch of leaders who feel the same way, we're uninterested in a boring, mediocre community that does nothing but pays their bills, you know? We want to step, now we do want to pay our bills, don't get me wrong, but we do want to step out in faith and where God is stretching us and God is calling us. We want to be the people who say, all in, all in all the time because where God calls us, fear is there, but God is faithful. And so we want to be that kind of people. In order for us to be that kind of people, we need to call you out to be that kind of people yourself. Don't let fear stop you. Fear will always be there and fear will always be real and always be louder. But Jesus is there in the midst of it. And we, that's the last bit. Now some of you are saying, well, that's not the last bit because my Bible has verses 9 through 20. But in my Bible, they're in italics. Is, is yours, is it in italics or a different font or whatever? There's a mystery to this. Now, because of time, our last message is going to be wrapping up, looking at verses 9 through 20, and doing an overview next week of what it means to be a disciple according to Mark. And we're going to look at the thread. We're going to go through all 16 chapters, and we'll do it in less than a day. And we're going to look at what it, we've been in this for a year. So we've gone like really, really minutia. Now we're going to pull back next week, pull it all together, and that will be our last bite in the gospel But tonight we just want to end it with where I believe Mark ends the story. I think he ends it in in Mark 16, verse 8. Now don't get all freaked out. I'll explain it next week that everyone's astonished and afraid. And I know what that's like, man. I've tried to follow Jesus and scared to death and put on a good Christian face like, (laughs) it's going to be all right when I'm like scared inside. And if if that's me, maybe on, on occasion that's you too. But we want to be a people that stands up and full of the resurrection of Jesus reaches out in faith. If you want to be that person, welcome to the ride of your life. I wish I had like, okay, now here's what I need you to do this week. I don't. But the Holy Spirit of God who spoke through Mark is now speaking and the Holy Spirit of God will tell you what does it mean for you to live not out of fear but out of faith in a resurrected Jesus. I guarantee you, if you ask Jesus, in light of this, what do I need to do? He will show you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take a step further. I think for some of you, as I was talking right now, some thoughts started going through your head like, oh, I know what this means. I know what this means. That was not your wife doing telepathy. It could be that was the Holy Spirit beginning to let you know, okay, in light of Jesus, this is what I require of you. And our, our, our prayer tonight is that you, in this season where we're transitioning from liberty back into our new home, that all of us will go with radical faith and radical service and radical all in, just like the people in northern Iraq. We don't get that privilege 
to risk it all. But we can live up to the challenge like our brothers and sisters and live in such a way where we're willing to risk it all.